Mouse to Mouse, Episode 13, Happy Talk. When taking a pleasant drive across the continental United States that happens to take you within a short detour of a town called Happy, I think most people would agree that the travelling party is pretty much obligated to stop in and say hello. Certainly, I am not the sort of chap who could pass up the opportunity to stand by some charming local post office bearing such a cheerful name and pose for a series of exaggeratedly smiling photographs with the wife and kids. So when just such a town was spotted on the map between our current location, Canyon, and the next stop on the Great Mouse Expedition, Abilene, I was at pains to point out to Sarah that we positively must make the alteration to our route. What's there? she quite reasonably asked. I've no idea, but it's called Happy, I replied, very much in the jaunty style of the town's name, as if this was all the explanation any sensible human being could possibly require. I would like to say that the remarkable strength of my argument and the innate faith that she has in my wisdom was enough to instantly convince my wife that her husband had thought this through and was clearly entirely justified in his desire to visit what would obviously be a delightful little hamlet. The fact that she had known me for over 20 years actually led her to adopt the look of resigned incredulity that often passes across her face when I get going, while an invisible thought bubble appeared above her head, containing the words, Here we go again. Luckily, my daughter has inherited something of her father's sense of wonder at such foolishness, so at least two of us in the car were filled with excitement at the idea of being able to say we had been to Happy. It wasn't long before we were counting down the miles on the road signs, and in no time at all, here we were, entering the gleefully titled Conurbation. We drove around for a while in search of the quaint little Happy General Store, maybe an RV dealership called Happy Campers, or a greetings card boutique entitled Happy Birthday, but no such establishment was evident. In fact, all I can say about Happy Texas is that I find it very difficult to see what on earth the place had to be so happy about. Where my fevered imagination had created the image of a sugar-coated rendition of Main Street USA, what actually greeted our eyes was something of a disfigured industrial wasteland that looked, at best, like it might have been vaguely content with its unattractive lot in a time that had long since passed. There was one business that was at least having a go at joining in with the joke, My Happy Place Café but sadly, this didn't look like it had served a joyful burger or a cheery Coke for quite some time. Perhaps in the coming years, the good people of Happy might take it upon themselves to brighten the place up and make it a little more reflective of its name, or else maybe add a much-needed un to the road signs. Having eventually recovered from the excitement induced by our proximity to Happy, we trundled down the highway towards Lubbock, The city voted in 2014 in a survey by the Movoto real estate company, the most boring place in America. Luckily for us, we were just visiting a site on the outskirts dedicated to the town's most celebrated son, a man by the name of Charles Hardin Holly, who the world knew much more fondly as Buddy. By the way, the missing E in the more commonly recognised version of his surname was apparently an error that people made so often he simply decided to drop it. I have some sympathy with this, as for some unknown reason, and despite the fact that I have never actually met anyone who spells it with one, everyone seems to have a desire to add an E between the K and the S in Brooks. As we approached Lubbock, another of those odd quirks happened, when the huge, randomly shuffling playlist that I had carefully prepared for the trip magically selected the Buddy Holly classic Rave On as the soundtrack for our arrival at our destination. 
I, of course, sang along heartily, much to the distress of my daughter, while Tyler correctly identified the singer as the one he referred to as the Peggy Sue Man. I am a huge fan of 50s rock and roll, and as such have exposed my kids to a great deal of the music from that period, and for some reason, Tyler has really taken to Peggy Sue, and regularly sings it in his own inimitable style, by which I mean he repeats the words Peggy Sue over and over again, in a manner that never seems to bore him, but drives everyone else to the edge of sanity. This did mean, however, that he was quite excited to see these monuments dedicated to the Peggy Sue man. For a boring place, Lubbock has made a reasonable fist of honouring a man whose active recording career may only have lasted 18 months, but whose influence has been felt on popular music ever since. We all posed for photographs in front of the giant pair of Buddy's trademark spectacles that sit outside the Buddy Holly Centre on Cricket's Avenue, and then made our way across the road to the West Texas Music Hall of Fame, really a well-manicured little park featuring a larger-than-life-size bronze statue of the great Mr. Holly, Stratocaster in hand, stood before a wall of plaques dedicated to some other globally less famous Texan musical heroes. As ever, we gathered as a family for the ubiquitous photograph before Tyler decided that he'd had enough of this sideshow and swiftly headed out of the park to where the really important memorial was situated. Indignantly, as we pursued him, he insisted that he have his picture taken with the Peggy Sue man's lamppost. Was this lamppost of particular significance, you ask? Was it perhaps adorned with a garland of flowers or engraved in some other way that tied it to Buddy? Nope, it was just a lamppost, like every other one along the street. But for some unexplained reason, my son had decided that this was where the spirit of rock and roll dwelt. And by now, I have learned that to try to convince him otherwise would simply be folly. I don't think that any of us would consider ourselves qualified to offer much opinion on whether or not Lubbock is the most boring place in America. But we all enjoyed our brief visit with Buddy Holly. And then, as was so often the case, we found ourselves racing against the advancing hour hand to get to our final destination – Abilene, in time to take in a highly rated museum of Texas history called Frontier Texas. As it happened, we drew up at the museum car park with an hour and a half to spare and were able to buy our tickets and browse the ubiquitous gift shop before our timed entrance to the museum ushered us into a darkened multimedia theatre. Frontier Texas, as it turned out, used a range of interactive exhibits and tableau to tell the individual stories of a number of the legendary figures who settled the Texas frontier. The effects and production values throughout the museum were much more akin to the sort of edutainment offered in Disney parks, particularly in Epcot, than to the hushed tones and hands-off approach taken by traditional museums. The use of theming and hologram-like projections, if not the stories themselves, were very reminiscent of a kind of walkthrough version of attraction like Spaceship Earth. I have absolutely no doubt that we could have spent much longer taking in and enjoying many of the fascinating stories throughout the museum, But the combination of it being relatively late in a long day and having a five-year-old who seems to think that the word museum translates into get from one end to the other quickly meant that we rattled through the walkthrough portion before finding ourselves in another theatre for the final immersive presentation. This theatrical performance was presented in the round in a manner that recalled the old Circle Vision movies that still cling to existence in a couple of the Epcot pavilions, with a sprinkling of physical and lighting effects that made the whole thing feel like a show that could quite comfortably have found a home in Anaheim or Orlando. The stories that it told of heroes and villains of the frontier were at once inspiring and remarkably moving. 
the most notable of which was the tale of Britt Johnson, a freed slave who returned one day from his duties in October of 1864 to find one of his sons slain and his wife and two children taken by a marauding party of Kiowa and Comanche in what was to become known as the Elm Creek Raid. If Johnson's search for and eventual rescue of his family bears all the hallmarks of a classic Hollywood western, then it's no surprise, because the events inspired Alan LeMay's 1954 novel The Searchers, that eventually became John Ford's iconic movie of the same name. Indeed, perhaps the most celebrated of all Western actors, John Wayne, in one of his most famous roles, the curmudgeonly but relentless Ethan Edwards, was actually a pale imitation of the valour and determination of a man who characteristically eventually died in 1871 in a heroic stand against an attack by 25 Kiowas near Salt Creek in Young County. Once we had finished in the museum, we of course posed for photographs with the world's largest buffalo skull, a two-ton, 26-foot affair sculpted out of steel salvaged from old Texas oil tanks. But we didn't linger long, as even at that time it was deep into the afternoon, the heat was still such that any surfeit of energy was rapidly sapped, and besides, there was a park around the corner that contained some other interesting metal inhabitants. Everyman Park is a rather delightful and terribly well-manicured little park in the downtown area of Abilene. It would be a very pleasant place to while away an hour, even if it had no more to commend it than its lawns and its picturesque fountain. But the thing that made it a destination that drew my family was its trail of bronze Dr Seuss statues. Some years ago, on the New England road trip mentioned earlier in this book, we visited Springfield, Massachusetts, the city where Theodore Seuss Geisel was born and the home of the Dr Seuss Memorial Sculpture Garden. The kids absolutely adored running around among the bronze representations of the Lorax and Horton the Elephant, so it seemed something of a no-brainer to visit the slightly more tenuously linked outpost. Mind you, with the difference in climate between Springfield and Abilene in August, this visit involved less running around and more excitedly ambling between the figures. There was one other notable difference between the two gardens, though. In fact, it was a notable difference between the two cities. Abilene, or at least the downtown area, is hands down the more handsome and well-groomed town. The whole area around Everyman Park was genuinely rather enchanting, but that was not the significant difference. I fondly recall back in Springfield watching Annabelle and Tyler join in with the chasing games of a host of what I assume were local kids as their parents similarly looked on in the temperate afternoon sun. I would like to relate a similar story of kinship in Abilene, but sadly it was not to be. I am not suggesting that the people we met were cold or aloof. I am suggesting that there were no people. Abilene was empty. When I say empty, I do not mean that Abilene was rather quiet or that it was not a busy day. What I mean is that Abilene was completely and utterly ghost town, post-apocalyptic, walking dead empty. I did think that I spotted another living soul in the distance at one point, but on closer inspection, it turned out to be just another sculpture. It struck me as odd that it was five o'clock on a warm Sunday afternoon in August and the place was sans population. But then I began to think about some of the things we had seen on the road from Canyon. By the side of Interstate 27, we all looked slightly curiously at a huge glass display case containing an equally enormous Jesus. At another point in the journey, we were slightly taken aback by the words, I'm closer than you think, with the accreditation God on a sizeable roadside billboard while another supposed quotation from the same divine source proclaimed, don't make me come down there. This, of course, was the deeply religious heart of Texas. 
And that, rather than an unnoticed zombie apocalypse, was the reason for the downtown abandonment. Unfortunately, it also meant that the charmingly appointed and inviting-looking restaurants and diners that we drove past were all closed, and it was fiendishly difficult to find anything to eat. In the end, we had to make do with an olive garden in a retail park, because it was literally the only place we could find. As it turned out, this wasn't a bad thing because it meant that we met Rizza, without doubt the most bubbly waitress we could have hoped for. By the time we had made it through the starter and complimentary soup, Rizza was practically a member of the family, such was her friendly confessional nature. In fact, while I don't wish to put too fine a point on it, it is fair to say that if any member of the Brooks family should happen upon her ex-boyfriend Keith Gibson from Liverpool, he would be treated with the contempt that his actions so richly deserve. The other, considerably less human source of entertainment in the restaurant was the high-tech table-mounted ordering system that Rizza was forced to use for some but not all of the order, but clearly had no idea how to operate. This seemed like a labour-saving device too far, as it was quite obviously made the whole job of the server at least twice as difficult as it had previously been, and left her in the rather ignoble position of being shown how to work it by my 11-year-old daughter, who of course instantly understood it.